Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. Thanks for tuning in and joining our River Talks community. This season, we're bringing you something a little different. Instead of recording live River Talks, we've switched it up and hosted interviews with a variety of guests. The talks were recorded on Zoom, so just a heads up if the audio sounds a bit different. Now to this week's River Talk. All right, everybody, welcome to another one of our online interview River Talks. Um, I'm Catherine Price, the River Talks Program Manager, and today I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Carol Busey. And Carol is a professor of history at Volunteer State Community College. She's a frequent speaker and lecturer on the history of Nashville and Tennessee. She holds the honorary title of Davidson County Historian, which is a well-deserved recognition from Mayor Carl Dean. And she's been a frequent speaker at our River Talk series, and she shares a lot of stories about how water has uh, shaped our history and continues to shape our history as we're moving forward. So thanks for joining me today, Carol. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So to kick it off, I know um, you were planning to speak as part of our Spring River Talk series, and you were going to share about some of the kind of new research that you've been doing. So I'd love to hear about um, some of the stories that you were working on and what you were planning to tell us this spring. And perhaps this will be a fall talk. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I I was planning to talk about the islands in the Cumberland River with particular focus on the six or seven that are here in Davidson County within the boundaries of the river between uh, Mansker's Creek and then over towards uh, Cheatham County. And I got really interested in these islands several years ago. Metro acquired a piece of property. It was a, I think it was a gift to Metro, an island that's up in the Neely's Bend, Madison area called Hills Island. And that had been originally the property of the Seventh Day Adventists. And so I really knew that there had, I knew very little about that island at all. I did know that there was a strong Adventist community in Madison at one time, and there was a college, an Adventist college called Madison College up there, and part of their educational experience was to train farmers and teachers, and so they had a a very big farm there. Adventists are, are by and large vegetarian, and so they had a lot of of, uh, garden type crops and they always had a big farmer's market for many, many years on uh, Gallatin Pike there uh, going up towards Gallatin. And I was very interested in this island and that's what really got me interested in the other islands. And and that's kind of the tip of the iceberg there. Uh, When I talk, I'll talk more about the Adventists and how they came to decide that that was the place. And uh, it's a really quite an interesting tale. But then we've got some some uh, bandit hideouts and some other things a little bit further downstream uh, as we're moving around the various bends of the Cumberland River. So that's what I'll be talking about eventually here one day or another with some maps and some pictures. And I, I've been really interested in the river for a long time. I think primarily because I've taught Tennessee history now at Ball State for 25 years. It's hard for me to believe I've been <laughs> this. And so, so maybe I'll get it right one of these times. But uh, it's been a great fascination of mine just looking 
at where the water runs and where it doesn't run. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me 20 years ago to realize that the Tennessee Valley Authority did not include the Cumberland River and its tributaries because everybody thinks, oh yes, we're, we were in the original TVA and we weren't. And so I got really interested in the Cumberland River and its tributaries as well. And uh, more recently, I have seen on some maps and, and read a little bit about this, there is a a place, a, a geographic spot called the Tennessee Divide. And it runs roughly uh, from the land between the lakes, right between the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. And then it comes on down more or less following the, the part of the Harpeth, but the Harpeth is a tributary of the Cumberland. And the water on one side all flows to the Cumberland River and on the other to the Tennessee River. And so I, I've dragged my husband up to the land between the lakes looking for a spot where we could see both rivers. And more recently, we took a beautiful little picnic drive down the Natchez Trace to Hohenwall a couple of weeks ago just because it was such a beautiful day. And yeah. there is a, a historic marker for the Tennessee Divide on the Natchez Trace about 30 miles I suppose from the Loveless Motel. Yeah. So we stopped and we looked one direction and we felt like we could definitely tell that that was, we we're looking towards the Cumberland part of it, but we could never see in the other direction. So that's what got me interested in all yeah. of it. So I have a funny story about that exact spot on the Natchez Trace. So <laughs> I, that's where I got engaged and it was not planned. <laughs> But we were, went on a drive down the Natchez Trace and we had planned a few, uh, my husband had planned a few other spots where he was going to ask the big question, but there were other people there. And so anyway, so we ended up at this spot, we got engaged and then this was before I started working at the compact. And then I looked back on it and I was like, wow, I got engaged where the Cumberland and the Tennessee River divide. And that just felt like some weird divine fate or yeah, something like that so things like that happen it really was divinely inspired yeah yeah so I know exactly where you're talking about I've got pictures of the place it's a beautiful spot but yeah it's just one of those really funny things that that kind of came up through, through my life so um but it's interesting you know you think about these divides between that you know between two rivers and they're um you know they're two watersheds and they we think about them sometimes ecologically and and hydrologically different, but historically, you know, everybody was moving in and out of all these different lands. And so um, one thing that, that I've been thinking about and sort of developing some ideas around is, is, you know, this idea that water is a human right. And we talk about water as a human right in uh, drinking water and having, you know, um, clean water for consumption. But I think that there's a lot about water as a human right and in its ability for people to access water for transportation and different things like that. And so I'm curious to hear from you, um, you know, thinking about that, how, how have you seen and, and just some of the quick ways that water and access to water has really shaped what our region looks like today? Well, water has shaped the, the, the way that Tennessee was settled for sure, because uh, the waterways were the highways, even for the Native Americans. And so that was the transportation system uh, long before we had roll, roads, even if they were toll roads or highways of any sort. 
And so the, everybody had to have access to water to survive. And then of course, here in the Cumberland region, we had all of these salt licks where salt comes up naturally out of the ground and people also had to have salt uh, to cure their meat and other for other reasons. And so this was an ideal spot to settle where you had salt and you had pure water as well in several spots. The thing about this that really I think is quite amazing today is that we assume we are the United States and this is the 21st century and we don't have people in Tennessee drinking impure water. I'm a member of Westminster Presbyterian Church and one of the programs we sponsor is called Living Waters for the World. It's a, a bigger interdenominational worldwide project. And so some groups go off to Peru and here and there, but we also have groups in our church that go to counties in middle Tennessee because people are living out in the country with a well that has been contaminated by one source or another and they don't have clean water and so what this program has is a very simplified filtering system that you make with PVC pipes and it filters and cleans the water for these folks. And we just don't think about that as being, you know, 50 miles or 75 for you for, from where you and I are sitting right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point that, you know, there's definitely still water access issues right, right here that we were experiencing. And not only is it is it a, a right, there's also this whole problem of keeping the water clean. And the Cumberland River is a really good example of that because, uh, you know, when the original water system for the city was created and before the Civil War, they were taking the water out of the river upstream from downtown Nashville and then the, when we had a sewage system developed, the sewage was dumped into the river downstream, sending our sewage to Clarksville and on, on its way in that direction. Now, you go, Metro Water Department runs the cleanest and best operation you've ever seen. How they keep our water clean really gives me great confidence in what I dream. But equally interesting, is the place where they they process the sewage over there close to Metro Center mm -hmm. and how clean what they put back in the water is. And so there, there's been great strides here in Metro to, to be a good neighbor with the people who live downstream from us. And it, it has to be that way. And you know, that's one of the problems with industrialization in the late 19th century is people got so accustomed to dumping their industrial waste in the river. And so cleaning that up is a continuous problem. Yeah, and I, I know that the history of, of Metro Water is really interesting too. When, uh, when you drive by the 8th Avenue Reservoir and you think about that being a place where we got a lot of our water and it still serves as part of our, our water system today and obviously in a much smaller way, but the changes that have been made over time to really improve the system um, is incredible and be able to serve as many people as we have now in Nashville. That's right. And you know, one of the things your, your listeners may not know about is the fact that when 9-11 took place that very day, Metro went into action 
with the Omahundra water treatment plant and the, the Heartlands, I think it's the name of the second one is the Heartland treatment plant, but to make sure that our water was absolutely guarded because if something happened to our water supply, it would really uh, create a, an enormous catastrophe. And so ever since then, all of these places where Metro stores water, reservoirs, have big fences around them. In some of these places, people didn't even know there was water underneath being stored by Metro because it looked like a park. But now it's got security fencing. And there were, I'm told that by the water department that uh, around 9-11, there were sharpshooters up uh, around the Omahundra plant because they were so concerned that protecting our city's water is a number one uh, a security issue for our city. Wow. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. I know I used to live by the 8th Avenue Reservoir, and so we would see that. And I remember when we first moved here, we are like, what is that thing up on the hill? And we want, I want to go see it. And then you see all these fences around it, and you can't go there. And I think it was was it in the early 1900s when that reservoir broke and flooded into all of those communities down there? I, I just can't imagine that, that feeling of that reservoir breaking and coming into that 8th Avenue area. 1912 is when that happened. And it, you know, I mean, just to wake up with this water gushing through your house, can you imagine how terrifying that must have been? Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. You can support the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks program and podcast by donating today. You can find a link in our show notes. Well, we got some great questions in from some of our listeners, so I wanted to ask you some of those. So uh, Jessica Gossett asked, uh, can you provide information regarding how the Cumberland River and other waterways in Middle Tennessee factored into the history of the Trail of Tears. Yes, this is another one of these pieces of history that has only recently been uncovered. The National Park Service has for years been putting together a Trail of Tears uh, natural natural trace or road, a, a road of sorts. And of course, what they've learned with their research is there were lots of trails. But one of the most interesting that has been the most recently discovered was by uh, a young man named Patrick Cummins, uh, Pat Cummins of uh, Cherokee ancestry. And he got very interested in his ancestors and began doing some research on his own initiative. He, he went to the archives and they, they started pulling up old maps and looking at the fine print in these own maps. And we had never really understood that the Trail of Tears really came right through here. But one of the one of the groups that was moved from over in the Chattanooga area came up the Stones River from just imagine where Murfreesboro is today. The, the county seat of Rutherford County for a while was Jefferson, Tennessee, which is now under the lake, but Murfreesboro <laughs> became the county seat before the Civil War. But this trail went right beside the Stones River up into Nashville. The United States Army was in charge of the movement. They paid the people that owned the bridge there over the Cumberland River the toll to bring these uh, several hundred 
Cherokees and probably some other tribes as well across the Cumberland River. And thanks to Pat Cummins and his uh, friends who have put this together, the National Park Service has recognized this part of the Trail of Tears. And uh, there's a boat dock down sort of in the very southeast corner of our county, Davidson County, and you have some trail markers for the Trail of Tears and you mm. can actually walk along it along it and they're supposed to be the National Park Service is going to put some signs somewhere down on the river downtown in Nashville but it's really exciting to think that there's still something else new to be learned here about this and the fact that the army had to buy them food along the way the Cherokees and they had to pay for these folks to cross the bridge and they came right here and you know one of the stories the Cherokees have always said Said, is that they really, by this time, by 1837 and 38, Andrew Jackson was back at the Hermitage and they asked the military officers uh, to arrange a meeting for some of their chieftains with uh, General Jackson and General Jackson did not want to talk to them. Mm. As, as that is in the Cherokee uh, oral history. It's been handed down. We have no documentation of that, I don't think. That's interesting. Yeah, I think the waterways, you know, transportation being kind of the veins in and out of our land has been um, obviously something through history that that has led to these different types of events and intersections. And one of the things I love about River Talks is that we don't just talk about water in the biological, geological, hydrological context. We really talk about it in this historical context. And understanding and protecting the Stones River for its water quality is just as important as for its historical context and the, the histories of, of people that have moved along that area. So I always really appreciate when we can make, make those connections. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, we have the, the rivers not only served as transportation routes, they also served as sort of roadmaps because mm -hmm. even if you weren't in a boat you could walk along the river and uh, you read the journals of Lewis and Clark and as they were going across Montana there were several places where they had to walk and they had to they had to get their boats up and then walk the boats uh, down uh, several miles their canoes uh, before they could put them back in mm. the river because of the waterfalls and other things yeah and as long as you were following the, the river, you knew you were going to end up somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, so they became that source of information as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, it makes me want to just sit on the side of the river and just sit and imagine for, you know, an hour, all the people that have crossed that river in different ways through time. Um, it's pretty incredible. So this was another question that um, connects to kind of what's going on right now. This is from Tim O'Brien. And he wanted to know, what was it like in Nashville during the Spanish flu pandemic? And do we know how many lives were lost in our region? It's amazing how many things these two epidemics have in common. And yet, until this has come up, we've always overlooked this 1918 epidemic. And I think part of the reason that this epidemic got kind of lost in history, the 1918 epidemic got lost, was because... By the time it really broke out here in Tennessee in October 
late September, October of 1919, we knew the end of the war was in sight, the Great War, the war, World War I, that we knew that Germany was really getting very close to being willing to sign an armistice, a, a peace uh, agreement to stop fighting, to cease, cease the fighting. And so here comes this flu epidemic, which really did start on American army bases, but it's a really good example of how quickly something like this can spread, even if without people having direct contact with uh, the, uh, the sick. And so it comes in, we think now, to a military base out in Kansas, it gets to Philadelphia, it gets spread all over. And so by late September of 1918, it comes to Tennessee. And Tennessee, Nashville especially, was booming in the fall of 1918. Our population had, at the time of the, two, of the 1910 census had been about 120,000 of Nashville. Keep in mind, we didn't have metro government back then, so <laughs> Nashville and Davidson County were two very different things. But we have we have the population swelling up to 155,000 of people coming into the city to work. And out in the county, the major producer out in the county was the DuPont plant. DuPont had gotten a contract from the federal government to build a plant to produce smokeless gunpowder for the war effort. And they bought a, a large piece of land uh, in a bend in the Cumberland River, Hadley's Bend, that they really did not they chose very specifically that bend in the river because there were so few people out there. And also it would provide us a, a level of security in that there were no bridges at the time at that particular spot to, to get people. Uh, and so they thought this would be a good place to put this. And so they had a tremendously high population, 7,500, even more employees, primarily young women, but also some young men. There was a substantial population of Hispanics who had come to, to Middle Tennessee specifically to work in that plant. There was a Hispanic village out in that area for them. And these young people who were working in the plant were living in what amounted to army barracks. And so out there, the, the cases were positively horrendous out there. The DuPont plant, they estimate, may have had as many as five to 7,000 cases of this flu. And it, it spread so rapidly because people were living in such pro close proximity. But it also spread here to Nashville. Nashville was probably hit the hardest. Statistics vary as to how many people here got sick. Uh, in the city, we think that as many as 15,000 people in Nashville actually got uh, sick from that flu epidemic. And the thing is, the language that the newspapers report are all about the same things. They don't call it social distancing in 1918, but it's the same thing. Stay at home. Watch sneezing, coughing, and droplets. And see, I thought droplets had only come into the <laughs> jargon with this epidemic of the flu. But they were warning people to stay home. They closed all the schools, all the movie theaters. They closed pretty much everything. The churches made their own decisions. They, there was a very active interfaith ministerial alliance in Nashville in 1918. 
and they got together and agreed we don't need to have church. Mm -hmm. It came up in, in October, it really peaked. And then it really starts going down, but you then will have it going down and then you're gonna see another little bump up uh, as people get out again. And so it was a, a very strange thing for people because you know, in the distant past, we had had cholera epidemics and measles epidemics and things of that nature. But this was really far bigger than any epidemic that the city had seen and the county. That's interesting. And there's a lot of parallels to what's happening right now today. It's a little almost eerie. I saw somewhere kind of when this all started, there was a headline that said something about, you know, churches being closed for Easter and all that kind of stuff. And it was actually a headline from 1918, not from 2020. And it was basically, you could have pasted it into a 2020 news article and it would have felt exactly the same. And so it was like, okay, we've, we've been here before. Maybe we didn't call it social distancing and we didn't have Zoom to have conversations on, so right. much different. Well, thank you for, for, for that insight into the Spanish flu in, in 1918. Now, this is kind of a different question, but um, I'm always curious for our River Talk speakers and as experts in these different areas, how people got into these careers, whether it's being a scientist, an engineer, historian, artist, kind of how we all kind of come to where we are. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about how you got excited about history and um, how you made it into the career that you have today? Uh, well, I grew up in a musical family. My mother was a music teacher. My older brother was a very fine pianist. And so it was expected that I would go to college and major in music. I had all the training. I, I uh, had piano lessons. I sang. I did this, that, and the other. And I, it was expected that that was what I would do. But following in the steps of a far more talented older sibling, <laughs> uh, I said, I don't think I'll ever make it that way. And, and living in our household at the time I was growing up was my mother's mother, my grandmother. And she loved to tell stories. And one of the things that you did as a child back in the 50s with your whole family, the 50s and the 60s, there were these very regular occasions where you went to the cemetery. Mm. You put flowers, you cleaned your family's grave areas there, the family plot, you planted flowers. But we did this quite, quite regularly around Mother's Day, Father's Day, uh, my grandparents' birthdays. Uh, Christmas, Easter, we, we went to the cemeteries out there. And most of my family was buried in a cemetery in Honey Grove, Texas. And uh, we would go over to Honey Grove and take care of our cemetery plots. And so with my grandmother in tow, she would always tell me all these stories about, well, you know, this one came from Mississippi uh, after the Civil War because Mississippi was destroyed by the Civil War. Now, she was sort of, uh, my grandmother was sort of unreconstructed. She had had a heavy dose of the lost cause growing <laughs> up. But her father, if you can imagine this, her father was in the Confederate Army. And my, my college students start doing the math when I say my <laughs> great-grandfather was a Confederate veteran, and they assume that I must be 150 years <laughs> old. But, you know, actually, the women 
uh, uh, all reproduced late, at least they had the, the line that I'm from, they all had us all about age 35 or so. And you can jump back to the Civil War pretty quickly on your family tree that way. <laughs> but that's really what got me into to history. When I went to college, my mother really, her, her big thing was, well, it really doesn't matter what you major in. If you don't like uh, you don't think music's going to go anywhere. Uh, you can anything as long as you get a teaching certificate. Before mm -hmm. my, for my mother, an insurance policy for women was a necessity in case Mr. Wright turned out not to be quite so right. And you always had a backup if you had a teaching certificate. <laughs> and so she didn't really care. And when I got to Baylor University, uh, the, the most spellbinding courses I had were history classes, and I had professors that I would sit on the edge of my chair just uh, vociferously writing notes because I was so mesmerized by everything they talked about, whether it was uh, uh, ancient Greece or the history of the American West. I was, I was fascinated by it, so that's how I got into history. Oh, that's great. I love hearing people's like that moment where you just realize you can't get enough of something, you know, I think for people, it's like, oh, I just want to keep learning more and more and more. And then, you know, you know, you found something that's going to keep you going for a while. Well, yeah. it's still keeping me going. I mean, there's always one of the things about working here at home, I've been producing my own little version of uh, River Talk, so to speak, for my students who were in face-to-face -face classes, but are now uh, in online classes. And so I've really done a lot of research for looking for some really new, interesting things for them. And I always try with my history classes, I try to make a Tennessee connection to the United States history classes mm. because they've had U.S. history several times along the way, but they don't really know much Tennessee history. And so I always try to provide a Tennessee angle. So last week I was looking for post offices, mind you, online, of course, post offices in Tennessee that had murals painted by workers for the uh, WPA during the New Deal. So I was looking for that last week and was quite entertained by the whole process. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. But, and the classes, I know you teach some Nashville 101 classes. Are there any classes for people that are interested in learning from you that are open that you have? Well, we will have some in the fall and the Metro Historical Commission uh, sort of keeps up with those classes. We're gonna do some kind of national history class in the fall. Uh, sometimes uh, I've done 101 in the fall and 102 in the spring. I'm thinking of doing something more in the fall towards the idea of topical mm -hmm. uh, subjects so that you would have four classes and each one would be a topic. And so I've been thinking about doing that this fall and uh, we'll see uh, when, when all the public is gonna want to come back out into that kind of situation. Yeah. That's part of the reason. Well, that's good to know. We'll keep an eye out for some updates. So the final question, which is a fun one that was submitted by Natalie is, what is one thing people would be surprised to know about Davidson County history? Well, everyone thinks that Davidson County, uh, Nashville, was, is and was always Music City. But little do people know that Nashville, before the Civil War, was known as Whig City. 
Now that seems very obscure, but you know, we, we assume that everybody who lived here were Jacksonian Democrats before the Civil War, but the alternative party to the Democrats before the Civil War was the Whig Party, named for the party in England that wanted to limit the power of President Andrew Jackson, uh, they thought he was acting too king-like mm. in some of his decisions. And so the, this Whig Party became very strong right here in Nashville. Nashville was a hotbed of Whigs because it had a business community. And the business community was very angry with Jackson for killing the Bank of the United States. And so they, Jackson had little support here in Nashville among the business class of people here. And John Bell, who had lived here at various times and was a congressman, uh, was the founder of the Tennessee Whig Party. And uh, John Bell actually ran for president in 1860, but the Whig Party had died out and he ran as a, a representative of the Constitutional Union Party to keep the union together. He didn't succeed, but he got the electoral votes in three states. Now, that's not the only interesting thing that Nashville is, in addition to Whig City. It's also known as Powder City. And so we immediately think it might be the smokeless gunpowder. But no, actually, it's flour, as huh. in baking flour, uh, because we had these roller mills here that rolled grain. Now, you don't see wheat growing anywhere near Davidson County, but wheat would be brought from the Midwest on barges up the river to be ground into flour here. Thus, we had all sorts of flour companies here. The one that I suppose got the most publicity was Martha White. <laughs> and her flower, but this was Powder City as well. It's also been Irish City and a lot of other places, but I really think that it's interesting to kind of look at these nicknames. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah, I had no idea about the powder, the wigs, anything like that, so thank you. Uh, well, thank you today for joining me, Carol. I really appreciated the time talking with you and learning more about uh, Nashville's history. Is there anything that you want to add that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Well, I hope people will keep coming to the River Talks, and I hope people will be very cautious about getting out and especially about putting, dropping trash uh, innocently or not so innocently in our waters. Yeah, and I think through every story we talked about today, whether it was the Natchez Trace, the 1918 flu pandemic, or um, thinking about the powder mills, we talked about water. And so I think that no matter what, our waterways and our rivers are have been important and continue to be important into the future. So thank you for helping us make that connection and share those stories. My pleasure. Stay safe and stay healthy. We hope you enjoyed this week's interview. We look forward to seeing you again in the River Center in downtown Nashville soon. Until then, thanks for listening, and we hope to catch you next week with a new episode of River Talks.